Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the latest episode in our multi-part series dedicated to the rise and fall of Theranos and the company's founder and former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. Before we get back to it, I wanted to share a few things about this podcast. This is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you get your shows on. You can recommend us in social media and in true crime discussion groups. You can like and follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you have a couple of dollars each month to spare, you can become a subscriber on Patreon, where you can gain access to dozens of exclusive bonuses. Every donation helps, as this podcast relies 100% on those of you who subscribe. This week, I'd like to thank Shauna, Marie P., Karen C., Mindy E., Randall W., Daria L., Michelle M., Melissa F., Kate S., Javier, and Jane G. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, going annual, or making a contribution through PayPal. If you don't want to commit to the subscription, then PayPal would be the way to go if you would like to still help out the show by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Also, please stay tuned. At the end of this episode, you will hear a promo from a podcast that you might be interested in called Strictly Stalking, hosted by Jamie and Jake. The sources of this episode include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou, entitled Bad Blood, as well as several articles and documents online about this case. Everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes. All right, so let's get back to this next installment of California Dreaming, the tale of a girl boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies, part seven. To recap from the last episode, part six, we got to know Ian Gibbons, a British biochemist who was Theranos' first real scientist hired to work on the company's first incarnation of their blood testing systems they called the Edison. A brilliant and proud man, he was one who insisted on standing by his core beliefs and refused to accept anything below standard. His insistence on integrity and honesty in his work, that would ultimately lead him to clashing with several colleagues, including Elizabeth and Sonny. As a result, he was at first fired. But when his fellow scientists stood up for him, he was reluctantly unfired. However, he would not be given the same job as the company's lead chemist anymore. Ian was demoted. He lost his private office and was relegated to a desk amongst the general population of Theranos employees. Being a proud man, his marginalization ultimately chipped away at his mental and emotional health, sending him into a spiraling deep depression. 
Then, when Ian found out that he was being deposed for the lawsuit Theranos had against Richard Fliz over a patent, Ian became overwhelmed by the fear and anxiety of having to testify, believing that doing so would ultimately cost him his job for good. On the eve of his appointment to give his deposition, Ian attempted to take his own life with an acetaminophen overdose that destroyed his liver, and ultimately he would die eight days later. And Elizabeth's reaction to Ian's passing was cold. I'd even go so far as to say it was cruel. Not only did Elizabeth never return Ian's wife's messages informing her of his death, Elizabeth sent in her attorney. An email was delivered to Rochelle Gibbons demanding that everything Theranos related needed to be either returned to the company immediately or destroyed. Elizabeth sent out an email to a handful of top employees at Theranos informing them of Ian's passing and suggested perhaps having a small memorial for him, but that never happened. Also in part six, we learned about the prestigious ad agency that Theranos retained to roll out a new marketing and branding campaign, and that agency is called Chiat Day. This included the photo shoot that brought about the pictures that we saw grace the covers of Fortune and Forbes magazines, a brand new logo, signage, brochures, and a complete overhaul of Theranos' website. It did not take long for the agency reps who were in charge of Theranos' account to figure out that the company's blood testing technology wasn't all that Elizabeth and Sunny wanted it to be advertised as online. And Shyat Day has a stellar reputation, and they simply could not put that on the line for this company. There are laws against false and misleading advertising. So in their efforts to try and verify some of Theranos' claims, they were met with a great deal of hesitancy and excuses. And what they were shown was hardly enough for them to be comfortable with publishing the website with the claims that Theranos wanted to make. Eventually, several of the claims were watered down just enough to pass. We were also introduced to a man named Adam Rosendorf, the lab director at Theranos. From the time John Carreyrou began his investigation into Theranos for the Wall Street Journal to the time that he wrote his book, Adam had been identified as Alan Beam, as he was one of several confidential sources who were working with Carreyrou to expose Theranos as a fraud. In all, Adam was a lab director for one year and nine months, from April of 2013 until December of 2014, a time period that is listed on Adam's LinkedIn. But instead of listing it as Theranos, it calls it a privately held biotech company in the Silicon Valley. It didn't take Adam very long to catch on to the fact that where Theranos was with its blood testing technology was way off from what Elizabeth and Sonny were claiming it to be. At the time that Adam was brought on, Theranos was delaying the launch of the Minilab numerous times that was supposed to go live in Walgreens because the machine simply wasn't working. 
but Theranos was under a lot of pressure to get their machines into those stores. They were running out of time, they were running out of money, and their backs were against the wall. They simply had to launch, or else Theranos would crumble. We also found out how Sonny Balwani decided would be the best way to deal with the problematic employees at Theranos, particularly the highly specialized ones, the scientists, the chemists, people like that with PhDs and such. They kept giving him pushback about the mini lab. They kept complaining that nothing was working, insisting that they couldn't go live yet, not like this, they needed more time. So Sunny began hiring an army of highly educated, but very young employees from India. Sunny, who was originally from Pakistan, but at some point in his childhood, his family moved to India, so that's where he spent some of his formative years. So he knew what he would be able to get away with hiring these young people who were freshly minted PhDs from very prestigious schools but with little to no experience in the biotech industry. He wanted to have a group of individuals more dedicated to him and Elizabeth, as opposed to being dedicated to doing the right thing and using best practices in their work. They were a vulnerable group who did not question Elizabeth or Sonny, because if they did, the consequences would be harsh, considering they were almost all in the United States on work visas. So the fear was not only losing a chance at advancement or losing their jobs altogether, but also the very real possibility of being made to return to India because keeping their visas was contingent upon being employed. As the fall of 2013 rolled around, the pressure to get the mini labs into Walgreens was at an all-time high. They'd been waiting for three years by then, and another delay was pretty much out of the question. Over at Safeway, CEO Steve Bird had stepped down that May, and the deal with them and Theranos was on very shaky ground. Elizabeth had to get their machines into Walgreens, or else they risked losing the only partnerships that they had, which would certainly mean the end of Theranos. So they came up with a plan. Instead of putting mini labs into Walgreens, they decided to go back with the old Edison. It didn't work all that well either, and its capabilities were much more limited than what they were hoping for with the mini lab, but it was definitely a better option at that point. It was capable of at least running some tests, whether or not they were accurate. It's a crapshoot. It was nowhere close to what they claimed and were advertising. In order to buy time while they waited for a miracle, they were going to pretend Theranos machines were running actual blood tests. They were going to use third-party machines to test Walgreens customers' blood at the lab in their headquarters. You know, the one that they named Jurassic Park because those machines were allegedly going to be prehistoric once Theranos technology was out on the market. <sighs> so stupid. I mean, talk about eating their words, right? I find the list of nicknames that Theranos had for everything, the Edison, Jurassic Park, Normandy, 
to be so annoying. Looking back, if I had the option to give these things nicknames today, I think I would call the Edison, the Smollett, and I'd call the Minilab, the Papini. Going around telling everybody that this is real blood testing. It's an actual device pretending like it works, having faked it the whole time. Only to find that we were all bamboozled, that this whole thing was staged, a hoax, a fake, a fraud, all designed by these narcissists. Well, let's move on. We're going to discuss just how Papini and Smollett, I mean Elizabeth and Sonny, intended to pull off their hoax. We are going to discuss MIT graduate with a PhD in bioengineering, Daniel Young. He was hired on at Theranos in February of 2009 as the company's senior director of systems and computational biosciences. He was promoted to vice president in March of 2012 and stayed on with Theranos until February of 2018. So he was there almost to the bitter end. In all, he was with the company for just over nine years, the last six of them being Sonny and Elizabeth's number three guy, and their all-around yes-man. In fact, Daniel Young had been so dedicated and loyal to the two of them, many assumed that he too would be facing federal charges just as they were. But Daniel managed to skate, though some believe that he was and is just as complicit as Sonny and Elizabeth were in carrying out this fraud. Not very many people at Theranos beyond Sonny and Elizabeth cared for Daniel. In fact, in an article I read in TheVerge.com, Adam Rosendorf, the former lab director, he openly stated that he hated Daniel Young. He also hated Sonny, which is relatable, but he didn't seem to hate Elizabeth. Years later, when Adam would testify at Elizabeth's federal trial, he was shown an email in which he was chided by her brother, Christian, for refusing to stand behind a faulty test result. Adam was shown the email, had been forwarded to Elizabeth, and then he was shown, while he was testifying, Elizabeth's response to that email, telling Christian that he had handled that situation excellently. On the stand, it was the first time that Adam had seen that, and courtroom observers could tell that he was hurt. Elizabeth Holmes was, and probably still is, the type of person who had a deep desire to be liked. So when it came to scolding and disciplining employees, she sent others in to do it for her. In June of 2013, while they were on the verge of making the choice to release the Edison instead of the Minilab and using third-party blood analyzers to do the real work, that's where their Jurassic Park laboratory was at that had all of the blood analyzers that were manufactured by other companies 
that Theranos engineers modified in order to try to make them work with much smaller samples of blood. It was Daniel Young's job to figure out the best way to make that happen. He had gone up to the lab on the second floor where Adam Rosendorf was working, along with a colleague in the biomath department named Sam Gong. He told Adam that they were there to take a look at one of the blood analyzers that they had had. It was one manufactured by Siemens, and it was called the Advia 1800. This was a huge machine, and it is capable of running hundreds of blood tests all at once, which is why it's so big. I looked at pictures of it, and it kind of resembles an office copy machine, but about twice the size of the average copier. It weighs more than 1,300 pounds, or just under 600 kilograms. So over the course of the next several weeks, Adam was in the lab each day, while Daniel and Sam spent many hours studying the inside of the Advia. They took pictures and videos with their phones, and eventually Adam was able to figure out that they were trying to gain access to the machine's hardware and software in order to try and rework it so that the machine could run blood tests on small blood samples rather than the large venous draws that that machine required. Remember, Adam had just started working at Theranos two months earlier at this time, and he had been told by Paul Patel, that was the gentleman who replaced Ian Gibbons, that Theranos' blood testing technology did not work at all. So he was able to put it together that since the Edison only ran immunoassay tests and the Advia was mainly designed to perform the same tests, it made sense that why they were trying to tinker with it. You see, the majority of the blood tests that are ordered by physicians are the assay tests. They are the test run during a typical physical exam, and it would definitely need to be a part of Theranos' menu of tests. So not having that available was pointless. It's also why they went ahead and resorted to using the Edison instead of the Minilab. Its bugs were less problematic than the Minilab. But the Edison still did not produce reliable enough results for Theranos to be able to use them to run tests. And we have to also factor in the fact that the machines were not FDA approved either. It doesn't seem as though Walgreens or Safeway was pushing that issue as much as the military had been. But either way, the testing was not going to be done in store. It was all going to be done at the Theranos lab in Palo Alto, in Jurassic Park, with machines that were invented by other companies. What Daniel and Sam needed to do was to alter the Advia in such a way that it would be able to run the blood tests on much smaller samples of blood than it was designed to do. They figured out a couple of changes that would, for one, help with leaving any unused blood behind when the Advia aspirated each sample. There would always be a little bit of leftover blood inside the reservoir. Daniel and Sam designed a smaller reservoir that would help eliminate any wasted blood. Because their sample sizes were going to be so small, they had none to spare on waste. They also added a step inside the Advia 
that would dilute the finger prick blood samples with a saline solution in order to increase its volume. While the modifications that Daniel and Sam came up with did help increase the amount of liquid the analyzer had to work with, it posed another problem that Adam was concerned about. The Advia machine itself has a step within it that dilutes the blood before the samples are run through for testing. The way that Daniel and Sam modified it meant that the blood samples were actually going to be diluted twice. As lab director, Adam knew that if the blood going through the Advia was diluted that much, it increased the chances of getting erroneous results. What that double dilution also did was bring down the level of analytes in the blood into a range that was not FDA approved. So in order to get accurate results, it needed to be multiplied by the same factor that the blood had been diluted, and there was no way of knowing if the results were even accurate. While Daniel and Sam were patting themselves on the back for the adaptations that they had made with the Avia, for Adam, this was not something that they needed to be congratulating themselves for. This was a whole other problem. They didn't know what the implications were when it came to overly diluted blood. Daniel and Sam were math nerds. And ultimately, when it comes to the lab, the responsibility for everything that goes on, it all begins and ends with Adam Rosendorf. It's his name that's printed on the lab's CLIA certification. So once Daniel and Sam were finished with their little modifications inside the Advia, one of the company's lawyers had stopped in to talk to Adam. He said that they applied for a patent on the changes that they had made to the machine. Adam shook his head and he just found this whole thing to be absurd. Just because these two messed around with the innards of somebody else's machine doesn't mean that they all of a sudden have a brand new invention on their hands that they get to try to, to get a patent on. Adam knew the thing wasn't even going to work properly anymore anyway. So the word about tinkering with the Advia machine had made its way into the office gossip and rumor stream. Theranos was about to begin blood testing unmodified Siemens blood analyzers. And soon, the guy down in the basement in charge of procurement, I think that's a fancy way of saying shipping and receiving guy. His name was Ted Pasco. He was able to confirm the rumors that he had heard that they were going to use modified third-party machines when he was told to order a half dozen more Advia 1800s. He got a pretty good discount for the bulk order. And while I'm not exactly sure how much each Advia costs, I did look around the internet to try to figure that out. And the prices ranged from 15000 to 50000 depending on whether they were new or refurbished. But the bill to Theranos was well over $100,000. And with that, with the arrival of these machines and their modifications, the final launch date for the Walgreens-Theranos partnership was pretty much set in stone. September 9th, 2013. Adam Rosendorf 
felt really uneasy about launching. He knew that they were far from being ready for what they were about to do. He was having particular trouble with two tests that they were performing on the Advia, the potassium test and the sodium test. And he was pretty sure that the troubles with the potassium levels were caused by an anomaly called hemolysis. So with the tests that they were running, the results were such that they were getting exceedingly high levels of potassium in the blood. Normally high potassium levels were an indicator of chronic kidney disease or uncontrolled diabetes. Hemolysis is caused when red blood cells rupture, which will release extra potassium in the blood sample when that blood is taken via finger stick. Hemolysis is a known side effect of that because when the finger is pricked, the person taking the blood must squeeze the finger in order for the blood to come out. This squeezing of the finger can cause the blood cells to burst, leading to the high potassium readings. So the implication being is that when a patient gets results back that indicate high potassium levels, they might be misled into thinking that they have kidney disease or out of control diabetes, when the truth is they probably have neither and are perfectly fine. Adam couldn't get the launch date off his mind, and the anxiety of it followed him everywhere. Even if he tried, it didn't help that Elizabeth had a number taped to the window of her office each day, and she would subtract one. This was her own little countdown to launch. As the days ticked down, Adam Rosendorf's anxiety ticked up. When the days to launch was getting down into the single digits, Adam made one last-ditch effort to put a stop to what they were doing. He went into Elizabeth's office to try and convince her to stop the madness and delay the launch. He could tell that this was weighing heavily on Elizabeth, too. Her voice quivered. Every part of her was trembling. But another delay was out of the question. Now, I've figured that the average Theranos employee assumed that the company was financially sound enough to just wait. Let's get this right before we launch. After all, Elizabeth at this time had more than a decade in, and she spared no expense. But funding was running dry. They had to follow through with Walgreens or else that deal would end and Safeway was sure to follow and they desperately needed those partnerships to attract more investors, more venture capitalists. So Elizabeth told Adam, look, if we have to rely on venipuncture blood draws in order to run blood tests, then so be it. And for a moment, Adam seemed okay with that solution. But when the conversation ended and he went about his day, he realized that his anxiety was worse than ever. Adam wasn't the only person losing sleep over the looming Walgreens launch. One of Theranos' chemists, Anjali Lagari, who had gone to India for 
three weeks on vacation around this time, he had returned to work only to join in the anxiety parade. Anjali had worked alongside Ian Gibbons for the better part of eight years, developing the assay test for the Edison. And just to remind you, in order to distinguish the Edison from the Minilab, if you see them online, the Edison is the one that has the black and white outer shell, and the Minilab is the one that's all black. They were never able to get the Edison to run reliable tests, and some of the errors were particularly high on many of them. Theranos had moved on to the Minilab before they were ever able to get the Edison ready for commercial use, and ended up having more and worse problems with it than they did the Edison. So yeah, they dropped one prototype that was still very much in the developmental stages to try and move forward with a second prototype that was in even worse working condition than the original. And everything should have and would have remained the same as long as they were continuing to work under the umbrella of being a research and development company. That's where Anjali had left things when she took off for India for three weeks. But by the time she came back, there was all of this buzz about the launch date being imminent, and it really stunned her. Because she's thinking, what exactly did Theranos think it was going to go live with? They didn't have anything that worked. Anjali grew worried. After doing a bit of poking around, she found out that some Theranos employees had been given access to the lab that were not authorized to be in there because it required every member of the lab team to be CLIA certified. She didn't know what had been done to the Avia machines other than it had been tampered with. In addition to that, they had all been ordered to hide the modifications that had been made to the machines whenever Siemens employees stopped in to service it. The Avia, from what I understand, needed to be calibrated every 90 days. So they had to hide the fact that Daniel and Sam had made changes to it. And Jolly also found out that in order to increase the volume of the blood samples, they were now being diluted not once, but twice. The Edison was only capable of running at most three tests, and that's being generous, on a single finger stick of blood. And diluting that blood even more would enable them to run more than just three tests. But because the Edison was already unreliable, Anjali knew that diluting already diluted blood samples would only make things worse. I think it's safe to say that anybody with basic knowledge of just things, like you don't have to be a scientist to figure out that this just wasn't going to work. Anjali also knew of another big problem that hadn't been worked out yet. And this time it was with the nanotainers. The droplets of blood that were collected in them dried out really fast, making it difficult to get enough of a sample to even dilute, much less put through testing. And Jolly needed to get through to Elizabeth somehow. She felt like the right thing to do was to postpone the launch, and she didn't feel like they had a choice. They couldn't go live. So she sent an email to both Elizabeth and Daniel and reminded them of the last study that they had conducted on the Edison with the pharmaceutical company Celgene back in 2010. 
They were using the Edison over the course of time to track and record certain markers in the blood that came from asthmatic patients. The information that they were getting back from the test results revealed an error rate so high, it was totally useless for the purposes that the company was interested in the Edison 4, ultimately leading Celgene to terminate the collaborative study altogether. Both Elizabeth and Daniel ignored Anjali's email. To be working on a device with so many bugs in it still, wasn't that big of a deal since they'd always been in the research and development stages of things? Was the idea of launching the Edison to be used on customers and patients was something Anjali could not in good conscience accept. She decided to give her notice. She would be leaving Theranos. Elizabeth was upset when she received Anjali's intent to resign in her email inbox. She asked why she was leaving and what, if anything, could be done to convince her to stay. Even though Anjali made it clear in her email what the issues were, Elizabeth ignored them. She told her the Edison was not reliable enough to go live and blood being collected in the nanotainer dried up too fast, rendering it basically useless. And Anjali had asked her, why are you in such a hurry? Why not work out the bugs in the mini lab and go live when it's good and ready? Elizabeth explained that she had made a promise to her customers and she has to stand by her promises. The thing was Walgreens and Safeway, those aren't customers. Those are business partners. The customers were the ones these non-functioning blood testing machines were going to be used on in order for these people to try and find out important information about their health in order to have an understanding what direction their treatment plans would be going. That is the thing Elizabeth ought to be losing sleep over. People out there who are very likely going to be getting erroneous blood testing results that may very well put their health in jeopardy. But Elizabeth just wasn't concerned with it. Either that, or she was in very, very deep denial. The problems were so persistent and widespread throughout Theranos with their machines that Elizabeth had not the time nor the desire to worry about how that problem was going to trickle down to the average everyday Walgreens customer who needed to go in for a routine blood test ordered by their doctor. Elizabeth was just concerned with keeping Theranos afloat by any means necessary. So Anjali had given a week's notice and within minutes of her submitting her notice of resignation, her colleagues had caught wind and began coming by her office to bid their farewells. But it goes without saying that Sunny hated that. I mean, knowing what we know about Sunny, it's not that strange. But when you think about the average company that you work for out there in the world, it is such a weird way how he and Elizabeth seemed to handle it when a Theranos employee gave their notice that they were quitting. Whether it was one week or two weeks notice, usually it's two, neither one of them took it well at all. 
because they seem to take it so hard and so personally. And really, I believe that they believed, especially Sunny, that those two weeks, it kind of allowed for all the niceties and well wishes to be exchanged. But I think he feared that it also left open the opportunity for questions to be asked because I can be curious as to why someone would suddenly choose to quit such a seemingly good job so suddenly. But more importantly, it allows for there to be the goodbyes and the closure. And I just don't think Sunny and Elizabeth wanted to leave any wiggle room for anything about themselves or for Theranos to be questioned. Across time, a company with such a high turnover rate and people leaving like a mass exodus, one right after the other after another, can and will have people wondering what the heck is going on here. You can't help but think that there must be something deeply troubling happening if Theranos can't seem to keep a dedicated, solid staff on board when Elizabeth and Sunny spend so much time and money building Theranos up to being the next company out there poised to change the world. That was pretty much what was at the heart of the con. You've got Elizabeth at the top. Beautifully shiny, polished, a perfectly crafted persona and presentation. Right down to the clothes, the hair, the makeup, the voice, the stare. She was the one that had the ability to cultivate and woo the hugely powerful men that the board of directors was awash with. And then there's Sonny. He's the one that made sure that the board and Elizabeth remained enigmatic and untouchable. A lot of times he's referred to as Elizabeth's enforcer. I don't particularly see him that way because an enforcer evokes images of a person who has earned his or her power because they've paid their dues. They've worked hard and they've earned respect. None of this applies to Sonny Belwani. He got lucky in the dot-com game. Though we know he tried cheating his way out of paying taxes on capital gains when he sold off the company that he co-founded. By the time he met Elizabeth in China, all it seemed like he was doing was bouncing around in life, trying to find himself. He somehow managed to win her over, eventually, though I can't visualize him having all this game. I don't even want to. I think he saw some of Elizabeth's weaknesses early on and capitalized because we know that in her youth, Elizabeth was extremely insecure. It's hard to say what the dynamic between them really was because if you take Sunny out of the picture, Elizabeth really doesn't appear to have this wilting flower persona. Maybe she did find some of her strength in him. But it's such a bizarre dynamic. I, I still don't get it. They're like one of those celebrity couples that just made no sense. Like Mila Kunis and Macaulay Culkin. Sandra Bullock and Jesse James. Bridget Nielsen and Flava Flav. Katy Perry and Russell Brand. Cher and Tom Cruise. 
and basically anyone and Pete Davidson. I just don't get Sonny and Elizabeth. But because I believe Sonny is not an enforcer, but rather just a bully who knew how and who to pick on, I believe it's likely he treated Elizabeth kind of the same. I can't say for sure because we can only speculate, but I do think that they got to a place where they just became so dependent on each other. Elizabeth was the one who could be deceptive by way of persuasion. And Sonny was the one who could be deceptive by way of intimidation. And everybody else, every department below the executive level at Theranos, was led by one foot soldier with proven dedication and loyalty to the two of them who headed up their subordinates and kept them in line by making sure that their communications were limited and monitored and they were on a strictly need-to-know basis and there was very little anyone was allowed to know outside their own departments. Like the key was to keep them divided, weak, and in fear. And if anybody crossed Sonny or Elizabeth, you were gone. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Forget working through your notice period. Just get out. Never come back. And even if you think about breaking the non-disclosure or non-disparagement agreements, we will sue you to death. There was just no way Sonny was going to allow Anjali any chance of relaying any information to any other employees. He didn't want there to be any farewells or any goodbyes. So he told her to just go right away. Knowing what Theranos was doing was crossing an ethical line for Anjali. So she decided to print a copy of the email that she had sent to Daniel Young and Elizabeth regarding her concerns. She knew that even sending the email to her own personal email account was too much of a risk. And her only way of making sure that she covered herself was to print a copy and sneaking it out of the building, hidden amongst her belongings. Another one of her colleagues named Tina Noyes, who had been with Aramnos for more than seven years, also resigned shortly after Anjali. Sonny and Elizabeth were not happy with Anjali and Tina. In fact, they were furious. According to Carrie Rue, the following day, a meeting was called that everybody was required to attend, and it was being held inside the cafeteria. On every seat was a copy of a novel written by this author, and I'm having a heck of a time saying his name. I don't know why, but it's Paulo Colhose, I think. P-A-U-L-O-C-O-E-L-H-O. He had a book entitled The Alchemist. The theme of this book is finding your destiny, but according to the New York Times, it's more of a self-help book as opposed to a work of literature. This was the meeting where Elizabeth gave her we are building a religion speech. If you don't believe, if you refuse to drink the Kool-Aid, then you should leave. And that's when Sonny followed up with, and this is where he put on his big boy bully pants, and told everybody that if they were not prepared to demonstrate absolute, complete, and total devotion and loyalty to Theranos, then they needed to get the F out. On Saturday, September 7th, 2013, the Wall Street Journal ran 
the very first of many articles to come that the newspaper would eventually publish about Theranos, which, as we now know, would famously, and I guess ironically in some ways, go on to trigger the collapse of the house of cards Elizabeth Holmes built. And this article was 100% manufactured by Elizabeth herself, and she timed it to be published at the same time that Theranos' blood testing technology was set to make its long-awaited commercial debut at Walgreens, and that was set to be announced the following Monday, September 9th. That was the day that Theranos and Walgreens held their ribbon-cutting for the very first wellness center at Apollo Alto Walgreens. And the press release also detailed plans for the partnership to eventually go nationwide. This article was a big deal for Theranos because it is unusual for a company that nobody had ever heard of to have such a glowing op-ed article written about it in one of the country's most esteemed newspapers. Since it was first published almost 133 years ago, on July 8, 1889, the Wall Street Journal has won 37 Pulitzer Prizes. John Carreyrou, the one who broke the Theranos scandal with his Wall Street Journal article in October of 2015, has been the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes himself, both for investigative articles for the journal, not Theranos-related, though he has been the recipient of a number of awards for his investigation into the company. As of today, well, a couple days ago when I wrote this, now that I'm recording it, I am a Wall Street Journal subscriber for purposes of this series because the paper did so much amazing coverage of the whole rise and fall, especially the fall, of Theranos. So that first article is entitled Elizabeth Holmes, The Breakthrough of Instant Diagnosis. A Stanford dropout is bidding to make tests more accurate, less painful, and at a fraction of the current price, and it was written by Joseph Rago. It opened with a quote directly from Elizabeth herself. The reality within our healthcare system today is that when someone you care about gets really sick, by the time you find out about it, it's most often too late to do anything about it. Because in those moments, there's nothing you wouldn't do to change it. And too often, you're helpless. We're finding cancer when you have a tumor or heart disease by virtue of the fact that you're having a heart attack. The article referred to Elizabeth as a chemical engineer, an electrical engineer, an entrepreneur, and a Stanford dropout who founded Theranos in 2003, and that she was inventing devices that could potentially upend the world of lab testing and have a tremendous impact in the way illnesses and diseases are treated. By the way, I want to say when it comes to Elizabeth and the fact that she is best known for being yet another Stanford dropout turned billionaire, joining the ranks of other notable persons who also dropped out. Well, not all of them are billionaires, but most of them are household names, including golfer Tiger Woods, entrepreneur Elon Musk, Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, actress Reese Witherspoon, tennis player John McEnroe, Snapchat co-founder Evan Spiegel, 
actress Jennifer Connelly, and 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. In the 10 years from when Elizabeth founded Theranos, up until the time this Wall Street Journal article came out, she had gone from working in the basement of a house shared by a handful of Stanford students to a sprawling industrial business park where Facebook and Google had once been headquartered. The cost to rent the building was $1 million a month. And when she furnished the building, she spared no expense either, having a $100,000 conference table in one of her meeting rooms. Even though Elizabeth's wardrobe was pretty basic, underneath it all, she is one crazy rich Caucasian. Even though she's at the center of this huge corporate scandal, she is still living really, really well, and she is still a billionaire. She and her boyfriend, Billy Evans, live in an estate that's just about the second most expensive mega mansion in California. In fact, it's among one of the most expensive estates in the world, and it's called Green Gables. Built in 1911, Green Gables has only been owned by the Fleischhacker family. Mortimer Fleischhacker was a lumber, paper, banking, and hydroelectric power entrepreneur. He also founded Great Western Power along with his brother, Herbert. The Green Gables estate is situated on 74 acres, giving whomever lives there tons of privacy. It has 36 bedrooms, 24 bathrooms, and is just under 24,000 square feet. It was listed on the market in 2021 at $135 million, but it was taken off the market this January 1st, 2022. Billy Evans and Elizabeth, and I assume her baby and her Siberian Husky, live in a manor that is on the property, but that manor only has nine bedrooms. The estate also features four swimming pools, a tennis court, a vegetable garden, a rose garden. There are also deer that live on the property too, which is kind of a neat thing to have living on your property. I mentioned that Elizabeth had or has a Siberian Husky that she named Balto. She took a flight to the East Coast where she met with a breeder from whom she purchased him when he was nine weeks old. Now, I realize that none of this has anything to do with Theranos, but I, I find it to be somewhat oddly fascinating at the same time. Shortly after Elizabeth adopted the dog, she started on lying to people about him. She was telling everyone that he was a wolf. I mean, I get it, but still. It has you wondering if this woman was ever genuine about anything. Somewhere out there on the internet or something, Elizabeth found out that Siberian Huskies have genomes that can be traced back to ancient wolves. So yeah, if I wasn't certain that my baby Fred had genomes that can be traced back to ancient potatoes, I could call him a wolf too. Just a short, round, pudgy, chubby, roly-poly wolf. And Elizabeth apparently still tells people who ask her what breed he is that he's a wolf. 
I don't know, like who's really going around asking what breed a husky is because they all basically look the same. It's pretty obvious, but whatever. Maybe it can be mixed up with Alaskan Malamutes or something. Anyway, another thing Elizabeth did that was kind of wrong was she used to bring Balto to Theranos all the time with her. And she somehow failed to housebreak the dog as a thing would poop and pee just like wherever he happened to be when nature called. In the hallways, in the meeting rooms, in the offices. Balto was allowed to follow Elizabeth around everywhere, including inside the laboratories. He would shed his fur everywhere and basically contaminated everything in the lab. Those working in there told Elizabeth that they were concerned about contamination, but just like everything else, she just blew it off like, I don't give a shit. I can only guess that the bottom line is nothing was working anyway. So bringing her dog into a biomedical laboratory was irrelevant to her. Elizabeth also began traveling exclusively by private jet within a couple years of founding Theranos. She insisted on traveling alone. She would eventually have to settle for flying first class when money began running out. And in yet another effort to emulate Steve Jobs, she would be chauffeured around in a black Audi without license plates. Steve was known to lease a new Mercedes-Benz every six months, so he didn't have to put plates on his car. Elizabeth copied a number of things that Steve Jobs did. But as far as I can tell, Elizabeth never met Steve. And when he died in October of 2011, Elizabeth apparently went batshit trying to find an Apple flag so she could fly it at half-staff at her headquarters. Therabro Jeff was tasked with trying to find an Apple flag, which doesn't really sound very possible on short notice. I mean, you just can't walk into Walmart and purchase an Apple flag unless somebody knows something that I don't know. So what Jeff ended up doing was getting one custom made, all black, with a white apple in the middle. And I got to wondering, if someone did that, if someone took Theranos's logo and made a flag up without her permission, she'd slap the whole world with lawsuits. She obsessed so hard over getting this flag that work for the day at Theranos essentially came to a screeching halt. She was apparently distraught when she learned of Steve's passing and moped around the headquarters, not really speaking to anybody but Sonny. Yeah, but her lead chemist, Ian Gibbons, who dedicated the better part of eight years of his life to her and her company, she couldn't even be bothered to call his widow and offer condolences. There was one quality about Steve Jobs where Elizabeth fell painfully short of emulating. As they both surrounded themselves with the best of the best in their respective industries, Steve Jobs had the ability to listen to those who knew better than he did. He was able to take criticism. He was capable of accepting being told no. And he was willing to work through problems by finding solutions. It's a stark contrast as to the way Elizabeth handled things, by going around problems any which way that she could, 
ignoring them, hurtling over them, pretending like they don't exist. No one had to know, so long as she kept Theranos looking perfectly shiny on the outside and made sure nobody would be able to get a true glimpse of what was going on on the inside. Getting back to the Wall Street Journal article, it's really all going to sound like the same song and dance that Elizabeth loved to give every time she spoke publicly or was a guest speaker. The article read, The secret that hundreds of employees are now refining involves devices that automate and miniaturize more than 1,000 laboratory tests from routine blood work to advanced genetic analyses. Theranos' processes are faster, cheaper, and more accurate than conventional methods and require only microscopic blood volumes, not vial after vial of the stuff. The experience will be revelatory to anyone familiar with current practices, which often seem like medicine by Bram Stoker. You know, at this point, the Wall Street Journal is still more than two years away from Carrie Rue's damning article that exposed Elizabeth as a fraud. But once I read this 2013 article, it seemed like the author, and I'm in no position to be criticizing anybody, but he, like a lot of other people, took what Elizabeth said as gospel. I never really looked that deep into this story until we started covering it here on our show. Leading up to this, I had listened to podcasts, I read the book, I watched The Inventor, I'm now watching the Hulu series, and it became clear to me relatively quickly that there's no getting around the need for an entire tube of blood in order to get the best, most accurate results when running a battery of tests. But then, to compare traditional blood testing to these phlebotomists being akin to vampires was kind of a bit much. At least when mortals get attacked by vampires, they're given eternal life. That's leaps and bounds ahead of anything Theranos could do. But anyway, Elizabeth pushed their one-drop gimmick so much, going so far as to even characterize traditional venous draws as being archaic, as bloodletting, by the way of sticking leeches onto people like they did on George Washington. Well, I'm actually not completely sure if it's been verified that leeches were used on George or if the doctor did the bloodletting themselves by cutting into one of his veins somewhere. But whatever the case, you know, you, you all know what I'm talking about. You know, I don't know how familiar any of you are or some of you are, none of you are with American history. But I mean, if you're not even American, why would you even care? But whatever the case, the doctors ended up draining um, more than half of George Washington's blood out of his body. And again, if you're foreign, George Washington's the first president elected in the United States. And they were doing this thinking that it would ease all this pressure on his system internally because he had gotten sick suddenly. He had a very swollen and inflamed throat to a point where he could hardly breathe. They not only drained all that blood, but they also gave him an enema so his intestines would be cleared out too. They also tried giving him some concoction from 
that was made from molasses, butter, and vinegar. But he almost choked on that when he tried drinking it. And they also tried applying poultice, which is kind of like an ointment used to treat wounds. Native Americans are known for making all different types using a variety of plants. But putting this uh, topical treatment on George's skin actually caused chemical burns. So nothing was working. George Washington died about 21 hours after falling ill. And because they did so many different things to try and save his life, I don't think that they could ever really be sure what it was that killed him. I was always under the impression that it was the bloodletting. But on top of that, he couldn't breathe and because his throat was so swollen and inflamed. And I don't even know if they knew what caused that. But anyway, it was way off topic. So the author of the Wall Street Journal, um, sorry, I just, I, I find it ridiculous on some levels that Elizabeth could sit there and make the current way that blood is being tested made out, she made it out to be so barbaric that it's being compared to being attacked by Dracula when she herself is behind a plan, a calculated plan to perpetrate some pretty serious medical crimes against patients under the guise of helping to save lives. But anyway, the author of the first Wall Street Journal article wrote this. A Theranos technician first increases blood flow to your hand by applying a wrap similar to one of those skiing pocket warmers and then uses a finger stick to draw a few droplets of blood from the capillaries at the end of your hand. The blood wicks into a tube into a cartridge that Ms. Holmes calls a nanotainer, which holds microliters of a sample or about the amount of a raindrop. The nanotainer is then run through the analyzers in a Theranos laboratory. Results are usually sent back to a physician, but a full blood workup metabolic and immune markers, cell count, etc. That was in my inbox by the time I walked out the door. Phew, all clear. So, dreamers, Elizabeth actually did that. She fooled this journalist into being one of her blood box victims and somehow managed to transmit a clean bill of health into his email under an hour? You know... That should have thrown up red flags all over the place. Getting a full blood workup with a raindrop size sample of blood. I mean, I get it. People were so enchanted by Elizabeth. But it doesn't take much more than just a couple of clicks around the internet to figure out that that's just impossible. Now, that's why she had to keep this quote unquote trade secret under wraps under such tight security. She made it seem like there was something so important that nobody could know about it because it was revolutionary. Elizabeth kept her most staunch supporters very close, and she got rid of anyone who showed the slightest amount of doubt. And everything Theranos related that was said and done had to go through her first. It really never ceases to amaze me just how much Elizabeth and Sonny were able to get away with for so long. The article mentioned at that ribbon cutting, it was announced that Theranos Wellness Centers would eventually be in Walgreens all over California and then eventually across the country. 
there would be a Theranos device in close proximity to just about every household in the United States. Elizabeth stated that Theranos' mission was to be the first healthcare tech company centered on the consumer, to empower patients by providing them with unlimited accessibility to their personal health information, to allow them ownership over data pertaining to themselves. I don't know about you out there listening, but that sounds like a bunch of fast talk. Personal health information is only available to the patient and their physician. Elizabeth went on to say in the article that the healthcare diagnostics market is irrational by pointing out that blood testing accounts for two to two and a half percent of healthcare spending, but are used in seven to eight out of 10 decisions that doctors make, and that there are an estimated 6.8 billion lab tests run each year in the United States. I don't know why that's irrational. I just honestly think she's just kind of throwing out some numbers to kind of sound impressive by citing various studies, but whatever. And then Elizabeth stated, the art of phlebotomy originated with bloodletting in 1400 BC, and the modern clinical lab emerged in the 1960s. It has not fundamentally evolved since then. The billions of tests generally follow the same ritual. In a hospital or a clinic, you go in, you sit down, they put a tourniquet on your arm, they stick you with a needle and take these tubes and tubes of blood. And this is where Elizabeth claimed so much precious time is lost, important time in finding out what's going on with a person's individual health and wellness. The blood has to be taken by courier to a centralized lab where the blood is taken out of the tube and mixed with chemical reagents or put through a mass spectrometer or a centrifuge. The doctor then has to wait many days, often weeks, before results can come back. The biggest problem is that doctors rarely have the information that they need to make the best decisions for their patients in a timely manner. That there needs to be better, faster, more accurate, and more cost-effective ways of getting those results back quickly so that the needs of the patient can be met as soon as possible. With Theranos technology, the multiple trips to the labs and the waiting and waiting for weeks on end for answers is eliminated because Theranos's proprietary blood testing devices are capable of running any combination of tests required, including follow-up testing, and all of it happens within the window of under an hour, and all of it with a single droplet of blood. There won't be even a need for further doctor's appointments. The results could be in even before that initial doctor visit is even over. The article cited a number of studies that showed around only 62% of blood tests that are ordered by physicians are actually completed, and the reason why is that there is not enough blood, allegedly. To make sure that they have enough blood for all the tests that the doctor wants for the patient, they will often draw much, much more blood than is actually needed to complete conventional tests. The tiny amounts of blood Theranos's blood testing devices need are beneficial to older patients who are sometimes subjected to very painful venous draws because their veins may have been collapsed because of their advanced age, 
It's advantageous for children who are afraid of needles. And by the way, that is a fear not exclusive to children. I mean, I'm not necessarily afraid of needles per se, but like most people, I just don't like needles. But I also don't like pricking my own finger either. I used to be a nanny for a child with diabetes, so I went to take a class at Children's Hospital of Orange County to learn how to care for diabetic children. And we had to prick our own finger and test it on the little meter. And I was not a fan of that. And I don't care if I sound like a big baby, just not a fan. Not afraid, just not a fan. And then there are patients who may be struggling with cancer who have to get blood drawn all the time. Theranos devices were meant to solve many of the problems associated with traditional blood testing. And when it comes to accuracy, Elizabeth would argue that Theranos' technology is unrivaled. She would point to the issues with traditional blood testing that can be linked directly to chain of custody. There are simply too many human beings involved in the traditional blood testing process that make it much more susceptible to error, specifically human error. Theranos' technology being fully automated ensures much more accuracy. In the article, Elizabeth again cited a number of studies that showed that because different types of equipment are used to test blood, that those machines can vary, that they are calibrated differently, and that the same exact blood sample could yield different results based on whatever machine is being used, and that this can lead to very large margins of error that Theranos' technology can cut down on because of their precision. Elizabeth said that because their system is fully automated and every single machine is precise and identical across the board, human error is completely eliminated from the equation. Speed, precision, better data, and the convenience of even collecting patient data across time to note changes and trends will meaningfully and powerfully answer the question of how to detect and manage these diseases early on. Elizabeth also did some math trickery in the article that wound up having her claim that Theranos devices could save Medicare more than $60 billion across 10 years and more than $96 billion saved for Medicaid. And she called that a conservative estimate. Elizabeth also stated in the article that she not only wants to increase the ease of access to blood testing, but also for those who do not have health insurance to be able to have access as well. She said that Theranos intends to publish all of the retail prices of their blood tests online and that they are committed to complete transparency, including self-reporting on their own margins of error, which she said very few, if any at all, do. Though the article did say that the healthcare system as it is now may not roll over so easily and just allow Theranos to take over and eliminate jobs of scientists and technicians and pathologists, and that they should expect a fight to the death over what Theranos is attempting to do to the industry. It also pointed out that Theranos had some heavy hitters and big names from the military and politics on their board of directors, retired General Jim Mattis, retired General Gary Ruffhead, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, former Secretary of State George Soltz, among others, and the Theranos headquarters 
also had several framed American flags adorning their corridors. At the end of the article, Secretary Schultz was quoted as having said that Elizabeth Holmes is the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, and this was not going to be the last thing she will invent or create. We will talk more about Secretary Schultz much more very soon. With the Walgreens launch and the Wall Street Journal's glowing, albeit deceitful and misleading article about Theranos, it was going to give Elizabeth exactly what she needed to begin a new round of much-needed fundraising. The word began to spread that there was a soon-to-be new unicorn in Silicon Valley. Elizabeth was poised to become the youngest female self-made billionaire and if there were any venture capitalists or bored rich people with nothing better to do out there who missed out the chance to invest in Facebook or Google or whatever, they definitely weren't going to make that mistake twice. We're going to start hearing some new names popping up as we go along here. They're basically either venture capitalists or wannabe venture capitalists. One of the first that was interested in jumping on board was the son of Donald A. Lucas. We'll call him Don Lucas to distinguish him. Well, maybe I'll call him Don Sr. and Don Jr. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Anyway, he called up a buddy of his named Mike Barsanti. They became friends decades earlier in college, and they stayed in contact ever since. Don Jr. wanted to discuss Theranos. <laughs> Hey, my God, these dogs have been barking all freaking morning. I've been at this for hours. Anyway, where was I? Don Jr. Don Lucas. Uh, he called up a buddy of his name, Mike Barsanti. They became friends decades earlier in college, and they stayed in contact ever since. He wanted to discuss Theranos. Now, the two of them hadn't even talked about Theranos since about seven or so years earlier when they sat for one of Elizabeth's early presentations. If I'm remembering correctly, I think I talked about both father and son early on in this series, and I may have even got a little bit confused, and that's because, oddly enough, today they're both deceased. They don't exactly have the same names, but to differentiate, I'm going to go ahead and Go with the plan to refer to the father as Don Sr. and the son as Don Jr. What's kind of odd is Don Sr. died on December 27th, 2019 at the age of 89. And Don Jr. actually died a month and a day later on January 28th, 2020 at the age of only 57. All that is said online about his death, the younger one, is that he died peacefully in his home of natural causes with his family by his side. Okay, so Don Sr., he's described in Bad Blood as a legendary venture capitalist who chaired Theranos' board of directors early on. His son, Don Jr., was not impressed with Elizabeth seven years earlier when he attended that presentation. She was kind of awkward and frumpy and discombobulated and nervous, and she rambled on during her cringy sales pitch. Mike remembered Don Jr. telling him how much he did not like Elizabeth nor did he believe what she was saying about her technology was true. Don Jr. was mentored by his father before starting his own venture capital firm called RWI Ventures. 
And in 2009, he started a new company he called Lucas Venture Group. And now here he was some seven years later, and he was ready to jump on board the Theranos bandwagon. Don Jr. told Mike that Theranos had advanced by leaps and bounds since they last discussed the company, and he figured it was the perfect time to get in on the investing. Elizabeth had actually reached out to Don Jr. with an offer that he couldn't resist. Because she had had a good relationship with his father, who by the time Theranos launched into Walgreens was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's disease, she offered Don Jr. the opportunity to invest early, ahead of an upcoming fundraising campaign, and at a good discount. Don Jr. told Mike that his plan was to raise money for two ventures. One would invest in a handful of companies which would include Theranos, and the other would be funds for Theranos only. If they wanted to do it, they would have to move quickly because they had to seal the deal before the end of the month, which was September of 2013. This was on the heels of the Walgreens partnership and the press announcement and the Wall Street Journal article. That was all Elizabeth needed to start bringing in money hand over fist. Being publicly recognized by the Wall Street Journal just did wonders for her fundraising. Don Jr. followed that up with an email that he sent to Mike with several other potential investors with the link to the Wall Street Journal article that sang Elizabeth's praises. He also said in his email that Theranos was valued at approximately $6 billion. And Mike was like, damn, that's some serious money. At the same time, this was an investment that they could have made seven years earlier when Theranos was barely worth $40 million. But Don Jr. was much more confident now. They've signed up with Walgreens. Safeway is waiting in the wings, as is the military. The money is there for the taking. So Mike got a bunch of his family to put their money together, and they invested almost $800,000 into Theranos, as did several more of Don Jr.'s investors. As the money came pouring into the Silicon Valley, it wasn't just Theranos that was getting money thrown their way. There were dozens of other startups. And that was when an investor named Eileen Lee coined the term unicorn when describing these new kinds of startups that were spreading all over the valley. They are privately owned companies with a valuation of $1 billion or more. Unicorns. At the time that the Wall Street Journal ran its first article on Theranos, Uber had just weeks earlier raised more than $360 million and was valued at $3.5 billion. By November, Spotify had reached a valuation of $4 billion and brought in $250 million in fundraising. When Theranos launched in Walgreens and made its mainstream media debut, it would soon leave Uber and Spotify in its dust. Companies with a valuation of over $10 billion are called decacorns, and an example of this would be SpaceX. Currently, there are approximately 800 unicorns and 30 decacorns operating within the Silicon Valley. Once the Walgreens rollout was on and Theranos had gained a bit of national attention by way of the Wall Street Journal article that coincided with the announcement of the partnership and the ribbon cutting of the very first wellness center in Palo Alto, Elizabeth and Sonny had taken measures to beef up security. I mean, they'd always been very protective of Theranos and all of its bloody little secrets, but the paranoia between the two of them kind of kicked into high gear. In fact, they had somehow let it creep into their minds that their two biggest competitors in the blood testing technology market 
LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics, they were convinced that they were plotting to take Theranos down. I honestly don't know if they truly believe that to be the case because they knew Theranos' blood testing devices didn't work. And if anybody at either of those companies were aware of Theranos to begin with, and that's a big if, they probably knew better than anyone that Theranos was making claims that simply weren't logistically possible. Quest is a Fortune 500 company founded in 1967 that today has more than 48,000 employees. And LabCorp is an S&P 500 company founded in 1978 that currently employs somewhere around 72,000 employees. I'm not even sure Theranos was even on their radar. But if it was, if those two companies that Sonny and Elizabeth were nervous about were aware of what Theranos was claiming its top secret devices were capable of, if they knew better, then they probably knew that it wasn't possible. What Theranos was claiming wasn't possible. Honestly, if Sonny and Elizabeth were going around flanked by armed bodyguards out of fears that Quest and LabCorp had henchmen out there to get them, it was most likely nothing more than the two of them spinning more and more buzz. Because if the two largest biomedical technology companies are after them, then it would give the impression that there is something incredibly valuable that Theranos is attempting to protect. It kind of reminds me of this kid's show that I used to watch with my daughter on Nickelodeon called Victorious. It centered around six teenagers who attended a school of arts in Hollywood, California, right? And I watched most, if not all, of these episodes with her. Okay, so there was this one episode where the kids wanted to put on a play that one of them had written and produced, but she needed some funding in order to put it together at the school's theater. They ended up getting the owner of their favorite Chinese restaurant, Walkstar, to put up the money, but with one caveat. The owner wanted her daughter to have a part in the play. The kids reluctantly agreed in order to get the money that they needed because the daughter was talentless and irritating. What they decided to do is to try and stall the mom at the restaurant because she wanted to go to the theater to watch it while they put on the play and kept it as is without adding the daughter in to the whole thing. They actually left her hiding in the rafters until it was over. And how they stalled the mom was they knew that she was obsessed with celebrities. Her restaurant walls were covered with pictures of herself taken with all these famous people who have dined at Walkstar. So the way that they were going to stall was pretend that one of them was actually a celebrity. So she got all glammed up and came in with a bodyguard while a couple of the other kids were planted inside the restaurant and began freaking out when she came through the front door, making a big fuss about this celebrity, this movie star. And the mom was so confused because she didn't know who this person was, but everyone kept insisting that she's this huge star and wanted to take pictures and get autographs. So the mom got held up at the restaurant waiting for this supposed celebrity to finish her dinner so she could get a picture and an autograph. And it ended up taking too long and she ended up missing the whole play. Sonny and Elizabeth hiring armed bodyguards gave them the appearance of being VIPs, right? I mean, if I hired someone to walk next to me everywhere that I went and all he needed was a dark suit and some sunglasses and an earpiece, people would start to wonder. But really, 
Sonny and Elizabeth weren't protecting trade secrets. They were protecting trade lies. There was also a threat that good old Richard Fliz made when he was deposed, that he intended to F with Elizabeth until she was dead and gone. And this was not a threat that she took lightly. So after General James Mattis came onto the Theranos Board of Directors, he put in a good word for the guy who protected him whenever he was in Iraq or Afghanistan. And his name was Jim Rivera. So if this guy is out there protecting Mad Dog Mattis, a man himself who is quite intimidating in his own right, then I'm sure it's safe to say that Jim Rivera is probably a pretty tough cookie. I didn't find his picture when I searched. The top results actually took me to a baseball outfielder named Jim Rivera, who played in the MLB from 1952 to 1961. But I did find Jim's LinkedIn, and it listed his skills as force protection, counterterrorism, military, weapons, physical security, information assurance, security operations, security management, criminal investigations, CBRN specialist, which is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear specialist, vulnerability assessment, and security clearance. When working for Elizabeth, Jim Rivera was in charge of her security team that consisted of six other security guards. They were armed and they wore the obligatory earpieces. It was like Elizabeth's own private secret service. And you know, the whole security detail thing was impressive. It gave credence to the idea that Theranos' technology was incredibly valuable. So the next pair of investors were the head of a San Francisco company called Partner Fund Management, and their names were Christopher James and Brian Grossman. They had seen the Wall Street Journal article, and they contacted Theranos interested in wanting to know more about the company. They first met in December of 2013, and the security measures were at the same level as Coca-Cola in their efforts to protect their trade secrets. I may even think that I mentioned Coca-Cola and compared it to Theranos back in part one or two. But anyway, it was during that meeting that Christopher and Brian were told by Elizabeth that their blood testing technology was capable of running a thousand blood testing codes. They're the billing codes that are used when insurance companies are sent bills. So what it says in Carrie Rue's Bad Blood is that the finger stick blood testing technology Theranos had developed was able to perform blood tests that cover 1,000 out of 1,300 of the billing codes that laboratories used. But the truth was, is that because many of the blood tests have numerous codes associated with them, the actual number of tests is possibly a couple hundred, if that, not the 1,000 Theranos claimed in their roundabout truth-bending ways. Then a couple of weeks later, Christopher and Brian met with Elizabeth again. This time, she had some kind of chart that she made up that was on a PowerPoint. And so there was this line that went across the chart, and around it, there were random polka dots kind of scattered closely along the line. I mean, not polka dots, they're like data plot points, I guess is what they're called. What this was meant to depict was 
Each of those dots represented a Theranos result. The closer to the line that those dots are, the more accurate the test result is. So if there were any dots that didn't fall close to that line, that meant the results were skewed for one reason or another. But you know, it's, it's neither here nor there for me because it's so easy to just draw lines with dots and make it look and sound good. And Elizabeth is simply not going to put any dots that stray too far away from that line because she's fake and this chart is fake and putting it into a PowerPoint doesn't make it any more legit. And Sunny is still a douchebag. That's kind of irrelevant, but I just thought I'd throw that in there for good measure. Giving Theranos the benefit of the doubt. And that one of their technicians put actual real data points on the chart that came from real blood testing results. Those still didn't come from the mini lab or the Edison. Theranos was running all of their blood tests on third-party blood analyzers. Also from bad blood, I have to tell you that the claims that Elizabeth and Sunny started making once they launched their devices in Walgreens and got that article in the Wall Street Journal, they really started in with the monkey business. Carrie Rue wrote, Sunny told James and Glassman that Theranos had developed about 300 different blood tests, ranging from the commonly ordered tests to measure glucose, electrolytes, and kidney function to more esoteric cancer detection tests. Sunny boasted that Theranos could perform 98% of them on tiny blood samples pricked from a finger and that within six months, they'd be able to do 100% of them that way. These 300 tests represented 99 to 99.9% of all laboratory requests and Theranos had submitted every single one of them to the FDA for approval. Yeah, Sunny actually said that. Their boldest claims was that Theranos systems were capable of running 70 different blood tests on a single finger stick sample and that it would soon be able to run even more than that. The ability to perform so many tests on just a drop or two of blood was something of a holy grail in the field of microfluidics. Thousands of researchers around the world in universities and industry had been pursuing this goal for more than two decades. But it just wasn't yet an attainable goal for a number of reasons. The biggest reason why this couldn't be done is because the assortment of tests necessitated very different techniques specific to its class of testing. So if there was only one drop of blood collected, and the doctor ordered 12 different tests to be done, as soon as the first test is finished, the sample would be used up. There was no more blood to conduct the other types of tests needed to fulfill the order. Another problem in dealing with tiny amounts of blood had to do with not being able to transfer the blood samples into the microfluidic chips without wasting some of that sample. When you have tubes from blood draws, you have lots of extra blood to work with, and you can afford to lose some of it in the process. But with only a single droplet of blood, there was no getting around to losing some of it in the process, and nobody had been able to figure out how to get through that problem. Yet, by some miracle, Sunny and Elizabeth are claiming to have solved that problem 
that had been a thorn in the side of biomedical engineers for decades. This wowed the pants off of potential investors. But the icing on the cake that sealed the deal for most everybody who may have been on the fence about investing was Elizabeth's board of directors, a who's who of luminaries in politics and military. So you already know the names of the board of directors, but let's start with George Schultz. He was born December 13, 1920, and died on February 6, 2021, at the age of 100. He was in the Marine Corps from 1942 through 1945 and left with the rank of captain. He held a number of positions during the Nixon administration, the last one being Secretary of the Treasury. He was also Secretary of State under President Reagan. Secretary Schultz is the one who recommended everybody else on the board that I'm about to name. General James Mattis, 44 years in the Marine Corps from 1969 to 2013. He left with the ranking of four-star general, and he was a Secretary of Defense under President Trump. Henry Kissinger, also on Theranos's board. He's still alive, born May 27, 1923 in Germany. However, he is Jewish and ended up fleeing Nazi Germany in 1938, came to the United States only to join the United States Army four years later to go back and fight in the European theater of World War II until 1946 leaving the army with the rank of sergeant. He was the 8th security advisor and 56th secretary of state under Presidents Nixon and Ford. He is also a Nobel Peace Prize recipient for his role in negotiating the ceasefire in Vietnam. So he's still hanging in there, about to turn 99 in a couple of months. William Perry also sat on Theranos' board of directors. He's also still alive, born October 11, 1927. He served in the United States Army from 1945 to 1947, and then in the reserves from 1950 to 1955, reaching the rank of second lieutenant. He served as Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering under President Carter, and 23rd Deputy Secretary of Defense and 19th Secretary of Defense under President Clinton. Theranos had Sam Nunn on his board as well, also still alive, born September 8, 1938. He was in the United States Coast Guard from 1959 to 1968. Then he was a member of the House of Representatives from the state of Georgia from 1969 to 1972, and he was senator from 1972 to 1995. Another board member was United States Navy Admiral Gary Ruffhead, also still alive, born July 15, 1951. He served in the Navy from 1973 to 2011, a total of 38 years. And lastly, there was Richard Kovekovich, also still alive, born October 30th, 1943. He doesn't have all of the prestigious political offices held by the others or even any time in the military, but he was the former CEO of Wells Fargo. So these were the gentlemen that Elizabeth filled up her very impressive board of directors with, and all of them were recommended by Secretary Schultz. Just having those names gave Theranos the facade of complete and total legitimacy. No questions asked. George Schultz was the first one that Elizabeth wooed. That opened the door to everybody else. And one by one, Elizabeth ingratiated herself with every one of them. She wanted them on her board of directors. And once they accepted, they were paid $150,000 a year. 
plus 500,000 shares of stock. Henry Kissinger was paid another $500,000 annually as a consultant. And having all of these political and military figures on her board continued to push the false narrative that Theranos devices were set to be deployed in active military zones. So with Walgreens and Safeway already set and a contract with the United States military in the works, that's basically all it took to convince Christopher James and Brian Ghostman that Theranos would be making hundreds of millions of dollars, eventually, possibly, into the billions. At least that's what the financial projections that Sonny provided indicated. He sent a copy of this spreadsheet that he doctored up over to Christopher and Brian. It projected that for 2014, Theranos would have revenues totaling $261 million with a gross profit of $165 million. And in 2015, it projected revenues of $1.68 billion with gross profits of $1.08 billion. What they didn't know is that all of these projections were, like I said, completely made up. I'm no financial expert by any stretch of the imagination. I I can't even pretend that I even know anything. But even to me, that seems like an awfully high profit for what was allegedly supposed to be the very first year that Theranos was going to go commercial. I mean, I was looking at the other lab companies, Wikipedia's and their current revenues. And I realized that these numbers Sonny pulled out of his ass but they're still really, really over-exaggerated based on what I'm seeing competing companies doing that are way bigger than Theranos ever would become. It's also worth mentioning a couple of other fun facts. Ever since Elizabeth fired their CFO, Henry Mosley, almost eight years earlier in 2006, they never put anyone in his place. The only person remotely close to fulfilling that role for Theranos was a woman named Denise Yam, and she was a corporate controller. About a month and a half after Sonny sent those projections to Christopher and Brian, Denise had come up with projections of her own while getting ready to offer stock options to Theranos employees. And her numbers were way, way lower than Sonny's. When you do the math, Denise projected 2014 profits to be 130 million less than Sunny's. And her 2015 projections were a whopping 980 million less than Sunny's. When it came to revenue, Denise projected 50 million for 2014 and 134 million for 2015. That comes to 211 million and 1.55 billion less, respectively than the spreadsheet that Sonny dreamt up. And you know what makes this even worse? Sonny was so far off, somebody needed to smack him back into reality because even Denise's projections weren't even close to being accurate either. And Forbes magazine has a pretty good breakdown tracing Theranos's dismal finances. The article was written by Jenna McAvoy. She's covered the world's richest people for Forbes, and it was dated September 14th, 2021. So this was during Elizabeth's trial. The thing that's confusing is that she discusses the corporate controller 
who was called as a very first witness for the federal government. Because if you remember, Elizabeth was tried in federal court in the state of California. The controller's name was Sohan Spivy, but she is one and the same as Denise Yam. So I'm going to just continue calling her Denise. She had the most detailed information that Theranos ever shared publicly about their finances. Financial records showed, to which Denise testified, that Theranos recorded net losses of $16.2 million in 2010, $27.7 million in 2011, $57 million in 2012, and $92 million in 2013. There was no revenue earned in 2012 or 2013, but across 2013, Theranos was operating at a loss of $2 million a week and had accumulated a deficit of $376 million by the end of 2014. So you see, this is coinciding with a time that Elizabeth was under a tremendous amount of pressure to hurry up and launch the devices into Walgreens, which she managed to pull off by the fall of 2013. And that's when the renewed push for investors was made and was very successful. We will get into the kinds of money that people started funneling into Theranos in the next year to two years. In 2014 and 2015, Theranos began issuing private stock in the company, which started off at 17 cents per share, ending at $17 per share, with investors having poured over $944 million into the company, accounting for 530 million shares. But we know Theranos lost millions of dollars every year that it was in business. And ultimately, at trial, the U.S. attorney presented Theranos' 2015 tax returns that indicated Theranos made $429,000 in revenue and accumulated a deficit totaling $585 million from the time it was founded in 2003. In Elizabeth's defense, it was said that no matter how much Theranos was losing, she never failed to pay her employees. So, I mean, I guess there's that. Ultimately, it was the investors who lost and that she is probably going to have to pay a hefty price for that. But honestly, I'm sure none of us are sitting here feeling sorry for the Walton family who threw down $150 million or Rupert Murdoch who came with $125 million for Theranos or Betsy DeVos. And I know none of you are boohooing over her $100 million investment into Theranos. And all the other billionaire families, the dynasties and the tycoons who bought what Elizabeth was selling. Because I'm sure, we're all sure that they're doing just fine. As for Elizabeth herself, her salary was $200,000 a year from 2010 through 2014. And then she got a raise to $400,000 a year in 2015. But what propelled her into the Billionaires Club was her stock holdings. When Christopher James and Brian Grossman decided to invest, their firm purchased 5,655,294 shares of stock at $17 per share. When we do the math, that comes to $96 million dollars bringing Theranos to its peak valuation of $9 billion. And with Elizabeth owning a little more than half of Theranos' stock, 
her personal net worth came to $5 billion. Okay, dreamers, you know, I'm really tempted to keep going here because I have been waiting to talk about the next subject I'm about to talk about, which I'm so interested in knowing more about. And I mean, I know a lot about it already, but I really want to dive deep because this next topic, the gentleman we're going to speak about was instrumental in initiating the beginning of the end for Theranos. And he's a young man named Tyler Schultz, the grandson of the man often referred to as one of the most respected political figures in history, Secretary George Schultz. Tyler has his own podcast entitled Thicker Than Water, but it is only available on Audible and you have to sign up for the paid subscription. So I haven't done that yet. I just got the Wall Street Journal subscription and I am subscribed to the premium episodes for Bad Blood. There's just so much out there, but I might get on Audible possibly and see what Tyler has to say when I'm finished with the series. Then maybe I'll do a bonus if there's anything more to know because the fact is Tyler Schultz has talked openly about this often. By the way, California Dreaming is on Audible for free. So there's that. All right, let's go ahead and pause the story here. When we come back next time, we will be introduced to the grandson. We're in the home stretch, and I really had no idea this was going to be this long or this in-depth. And just when you think you've heard it all, you learn something new. And I started wondering, maybe this is carrying on for too long. This really isn't the way that California Dreaming had set out to be when I first started to have these um, multi-part series is but sometimes there's so many details that I, I don't want to leave anything out and I hope that there's some of you out there that are like that like how I am that just kind of want to know everything and I know there are some that don't care for it but um, I'm going to try to go back and forth you know we'll do a really in-depth look into a case and then maybe we'll go back to having one episode story. I could do that on Patreon too. But anyway, don't forget to request to join the Facebook discussion group. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I posted this week about a giveaway. If you're not on social media, you might try to find someplace to comment on one of my posts. I'm giving away a copy of John Carreyrou's Bad Blood. In order to be entered into the drawing, like I said, I just have to see you comment on any of the posts that I made on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or Patreon, and I'll put your name in the drawing. It's a gently used copy, and for some reason, I have two of them. I want to say that I think I purchased one on Thriftbooks, and one was sent to me by a listener, so I have two. And if you want to help keep the show up and running and keep the puppies' bellies full of snossages, then please consider subscribing to Patreon. You'll be able to listen to hours upon hours of content that you can't hear anywhere else. And it starts off at just a dollar a month. Also, don't forget to listen past the end of this episode from a promo from a podcast called Strictly Stalking. And that's it for this week. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for all the love and the support and the condolences. And until next time, sweet dreams.
I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the host of Strictly Stalking. A weekly true crime podcast exploring true stalking stories from survivors in their own words. We cover unique stalking cases through interviews with stalking survivors, advocates, and experts. Strictly Stalking has been praised by survivors, advocates, listeners, and media for raising awareness about the dangerously underreported and often fatal crime of stalking. Our series continues to provide a vital platform for stalking survivors to share their stories. And provides anti-stalking resources for listeners along with important tips on how friends, family, and law enforcement can support stalking survivors. Please listen now wherever you get your podcasts.